Americans. This is the Urbane Cowboys podcast with Josiah Neely of R Street Institute and Doug McCullough of Lone Star Policy Institute. Good day. Howdy, y'all. Welcome to the Urbane Cowboys podcast. I'm Josiah Neely with the R Street Institute. And I'm Doug McCullough with the Lone Star Policy Institute. If you enjoy today's show, we ask that you subscribe and leave favorable reviews. Our guest today is Chloe Anagnos, Publications Manager of the American Institute for Economic Research, or AIER, as well as a grammar nerd. We want to talk to you about a few things today. One of the first things I kind of want to touch on is uh, the recent death of David Koch. We'll talk about that just a little bit. Uh, but there's been some other interesting developments, such as the uh, recent business roundtable statement that we might want to get into a little bit. And plus, I want to get into some of your own writings that I see you do on personal development and such. But let's talk uh, briefly about uh, the recent death of, of David Koch. To the left, he was one of the two evil Koch brothers. And on the right, it seems kind of complicated because I see sort of conservatives and libertarians both claiming him. And maybe even in this climate, some conservatives who are sort of running away from David Koch. So from your perspective, not that we expect you to be sort of an expert on his entire life, but um, what's your perspective on David Koch? What is his legacy? Oh, I definitely think it's a legacy of charitableness. And it's funny that you say that libertarians and conservatives have a hard time claiming him. I think he was definitely more libertarian than a lot of conservatives or or libertarians themselves would like to believe. I think he was one of the richest people, at least at the time, to come out in support of gay marriage, which a lot of progressive organizations and individuals don't really like to recognize. And he also was an incredibly charitable person. Uh, You see people like Bill Gates or Jeff Bezos, who are very wealthy individuals who champion a lot of progressive causes. And uh, it's it's funny that David Koch um, and his his family did a lot of the same thing. But yet there are there are websites called uncokemycampus.org that's dedicated to getting dirty, dirty Koch money out of public and or private institutions. So. I, I don't know. I think it's uh, I think it's kind of sad the way that he's been treated, especially on the Internet after his death. It's always sad whenever someone who tried to make a difference in the world is vilified in the media. And I think that's definitely the case in his in his situation. Yeah. I was, so you just before we started recording, you were telling me a little bit about your college experience with the with the Cokes and reputation. What do you think drove that? Why do you think they hated the Koch brothers so much? Oh, because they're they're capitalists greedy pigs. I mean, <laughs> I, I don't I don't think they necessarily are. I, I'm looking at this article right now where he talked about uh, David Koch in particular. He talked about how he wanted to give more money back to charity than buying another $150 million home. And he donated so much money to cancer centers. He himself died of cancer. $100 million to the New York Presbyterian Hospital. Another $100 million to the New York State Theater at Lincoln Center. I mean, a lot to the arts, a lot to entrepreneurship programs, even $65 million to the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Uh, so I don't understand what the difference between Bill Gates, Bezos, and David Koch is. But again, you can't really reason with a lot of progressives, especially those on college campuses. I think the Koch brothers gave, I want to say it was either a million or two million to my university. And this was probably a year or so after I graduated, but I remember seeing op-eds in the student newspaper that said, 
oh, we need to return this money. It's, it's dirty Coke money. We don't want it. We need to uncoke our campus. And I was sitting and just kind of thinking to myself, in the grand scheme of things, a million or $2 million is not that much money. When you look at how much the Cokes have actually given to other organizations or nonprofits or universities. So I just think overall, it's very silly. And I, I don't quite understand what the difference is between, again, like I said, very wealthy people who champion more progressive causes and people who are just vilified in the media because maybe they donate to conservative libertarian campaigns, like I know the Cokes did, but also champion other progressive causes like gay marriage. It's just very crazy to me. Josiah, maybe you recall, um, I think I read recently that it was Harry Reid that sort of really started to vilify the Koch brothers. I don't know if you recall that or not, or if you know anything about that. Uh, yeah, I, yeah, I mean, it was definitely in that period, uh, around 10 years ago or so, some of it connected with the Citizens United decision, not that the Cokes had anything to do with Citizens United, the case or the implications of that case necessarily, but it became kind of a big thing. And, you know, to me, it, I mean, it's not that hard to understand. Uh, it's true. The Cokes have given a lot of money to the arts and, and, you know, there are some causes that they've given to, they gave money to like the ACLU. And I think they have founded a new anti-military intervention think tank, the Quincy Institute, along with the, you know, they're funding that along with George Soros or whatever. So, you know, there's definitely causes that might appeal to left-wing people, but they also gave a lot of money to right-wing causes, right? To free market stuff, anti-regulation, Republican politicians. Me personally, I like most of those things. So I like that. I think that's good, but, you know, it's it's not, I don't find it particularly surprising, uh, you know, even if someone gives some money to causes that you like and a lot of money to causes that you don't like, well, you know, maybe you don't like that. So that's, you know, kind of the nature of it. Of course, that doesn't mean they have to be nasty about someone when they die. I, that's kind of the toxic nature of modern political discourse and Twitter and all of that. You're allowed to, you know, say whatever horrible thing about someone when they die that you want, unless it's John McCain, right? <laughs> <laughs> you know, and it's, it's kind of ironic to me. You mentioned the, the new think tank that's going to be with George Soros. I mean, that's that's sort of the... Uh, the polar opposite, if you will, of the right likes to vilify him. And so it's it's this interesting political moment where the those, you know, the Soros and uh, the Koch sides uh, are coming together, at least on, I guess, foreign policy and peace initiatives, if you will. It's a strange time in that aspect. That also kind of reminds me of the uh, the comments from uh, Tucker Carlson recently saying that uh, the problem with the conservative movement, the problem with the Republican Party for the last few decades is that, that the libertarians are running everything and have been running anything. And I guess if there's anybody that tried to, I guess you could say, would be the, the Koch brothers. But, uh, you know, uh, Chloe, have you have you have you seen that great libertarian moment where the libertarians were actually running everything and were behind every congressman? Uh, that's fake news. Definitely. I mean, we <laughs> look if we truly were I consider myself to be a very small L libertarian. If we were running things, the Fed would not still be around. Taxes would be slashed and or non-existent. Um, I, I don't really, I was reading an article earlier today about those comments that Tucker Carlson made, and I just think it's ridiculous. I think the only Congress people we have in our corner are Rand Paul, Thomas Massey, and Justin Amash. 
we have three compared to what few hundred on on the other two sides. So, yeah, I, I don't I don't know what his deal is, but he's definitely spreading around fake news. We could probably do a whole different show on uh, Justin Amash, but uh, probably don't need to go there just right now. So it just so happens, and I think, Claire, you, you and I have talked about this before, but Josiah and I are going to be on a panel uh, next week, which is probably the week that this airs. We're going to be on a panel in Austin on uh, uh, discussing the future of freedom, and it's going to be a lot of these issues talking about the economic nationalism that you're seeing from uh, Tucker Carlson, sort of the move left among Democrats to sort of being fascinated by democratic socialism and so forth, and even the you know populism on the right. And one of the things that Josiah and I have been talking about a lot on this show with different guests is really the changing coalitions. And I think that's one of the interesting things about, say, a David Koch and the Koch brothers was they were sort of, you know, right within, I guess you could say, and Josiah may have a different view on this, but I think that they were sort of right in the mainstream, right at the heart of the conservative movement, right along with the right, even though they were pretty libertarian. And now, particularly with comments like Tucker Carlson, that seems very foreign. The idea that there's sort of this coalition between libertarians and conservatives. I see a lot of libertarians that are rejecting that. And it's certainly not the direction of the Trump administration is taking the Republican Party. Do you think that there's more, you know, I think you, you referred to yourself as a small L libertarian. And, you know, I think we're going to be touching on Milton Friedman here in a little bit. He used to refer to himself as a small L libertarian and a big R Republican. People with that mindset, and I, I would to a certain degree to put myself in that category. Do you think that they're kind of homeless right now? And where do they go for somebody that represents their, their point of view? I think they Absolutely are. And I, I used to describe myself just, just as what you said, as a small L libertarian who would vote for a lot of big R Republicans. It was very, when I, when I did vote, and I sound probably like a horrible person, but I'm in the mindset now that if I do vote, it doesn't really matter, ultimately, and that voting is violent. Um, and that probably sounds like I'm wearing a tinfoil hat, but I think I am anymore. But a lot of those folks are really homeless right now. And a good example of that is Dan Crenshaw. He was this darling of the right, was on Saturday Night Live, war hero, incredible individual, said that he was going to stand up for Second Amendment rights. And then you have one mass shooting that happens. And all of a sudden he says that he always thought that red flag gun laws were a thing and that they were a good idea. It's just, it's just very odd to me that a lot of folks who would describe themselves as a big D Democrat or a large R Republican would look at politicians who say one thing. And then once they get to Congress or once they get to the Senate, they do something different. So I think that's where a lot of libertarians, at least in the last decade, have been very burned in that they championed someone, they donated, they spent their time, they, they volunteered, they rallied. And then all of a sudden, they went and got burned as soon as that politician that they believed in, that they voted into office, decided to do something against liberty. Another good example of that is our newest senator out of Indiana uh, is Todd Young. I volunteered on his campaign. I knew him when he was a congressman, not well, but in a in like a volunteer type of capacity. Volunteered on his campaign, made a ton of phone calls, donated, and then found out like six, seven months ago, I saw op-eds that talked about how he wanted to raise the the smoking age in the United States from 18 to 21. And I've wrote, I've written a little bit about this on, on Facebook and I think on Twitter too. That wasn't in my script. 
when I was a volunteer. It was Todd Young as a pro-life, pro-gun Marine who was going to bring back jobs to our district, was going to do you know fantastic things in Washington for Indiana. And then when I read these op-eds and his opinions about raising the smoking age, I thought to myself, wow, what a sellout. So I, I think a lot of folks who previously have been very politically involved in that capacity that I mentioned have just been burned and are definitely feeling very homeless. I feel very homeless now to the point where I'm, you know, I sound really cynical, but it's like, what's the point of voting anymore if the people who I championed at one point are just going to turn around and not do what they said they were going to? You mentioned uh, the red flags laws, and I think that's an interesting subject. That's I've been I've been accused of being an ultra Frenchist in the sense of David French, and he's for some time has been in favor of red flag laws, and uh, I think my own views on that are maybe we should explain a little bit what these red flag laws are. You explain the what a red flag law is, Josiah. Oh, okay. Well, so as I understand it, the idea of the red flag law is that it is a process where if someone is believed to be violent or unstable, a family member or some other concerned body is able to try and go before a court. And in the same way that you might try and get a temporary restraining order against somebody, you would be able to temporarily deprive them of their right to possess firearms, even though they have not, uh, at least at that point, committed any crime. This is put forward as a way to try and deal with these mass shooting situations, you know, where a lot of times you have people ahead of time who were saying, oh, gosh, just I'm not right about this person, but they haven't done anything illegal yet. And so, you know, but they uh, at the same time, you know, they're very controversial precisely because, you know, you're dealing with people who have not committed serious crimes and you're, you know, talking about depriving them of their Second Amendment rights, at least temporarily. And I think that the previously there, this type of idea was floated and it was, and I think that there's some Democrats that support the idea that the red flag law would be as, as broad as anyone who's on the no fly list would essentially have uh, forfeit their right to a, um, to own weapon. And where someone like David French has come in and say, well, no, to, to make it constitutionally viable, there needs to be some type of due process. And that's at least interesting. But then I think the president started to come out and, and recently, I mean, at least momentarily, uh, was backing red flag laws. And this was right about the time of the, uh, uh, the video of Chris Cuomo and, and suddenly the uh, everybody using the uh, the nickname Fredo on him in this this weird video. And the president came out and said, well, Chris Cuomo is uh, deranged or something like that. And said he has no, you know, he's somebody who shouldn't own a gun. And I was like, if there ever was an example of why a red flag law, it would be problematic is the president of the United States just seeing a video of somebody in an argument saying, well, there you go. That's somebody who shouldn't own a gun. Exactly. And it leaves open this broad, vague arena where if you have a problem with your cousin or a former husband, wife, child, whomever, all you have to do is go to a judge and say, oh, well, I think they're a danger to themselves and those around them. And we're op- opening it up for, for families to essentially say, hey, I think this person's crazy. You need to take these guns away without any type of proper medical psychiatric training whatsoever. So it's just a very slippery slope. And I obviously don't agree with it. 
Right. And so I wanted to talk a little bit about your work at AIER. We recently had Jeffrey Tucker on the program a few months ago, but remind us about the focus of AIER and then tell us a little bit about your personal work there. Sure. So the American Institute for Economic Research, AIER, is focused on, at least in in my role, my department, getting research about economics, about free markets, about history out to the masses and frankly to the world. So my role, I'm our publications manager. Uh, It is my job to make books come to life. So we had for the longest time at AIR, we had a printing program, we had a publications program, but somewhere along the way, um, it kind of fell to the wayside. And as technology advances, it can get kind of difficult to figure out the best way to print books to get your research out there. And so when this amazing website called Amazon came along, it made it very, very easy for books to be published by individuals, by nonprofits, bigger organizations. And so we have now sought to get a lot of the titles that we had in print originally in the 30s, 40s, and 50s. Uh, back into print and update them a little bit, make them more modern so that people can understand liberty, they can understand free markets and essentially advocate for them. So what would be some of the examples of the titles? Sure. So a lot of the titles that we've had uh, that have come out recently, uh, one of them, my favorite that I finally got up on the Amazon website is called The Best of Ludwig von Mises. So those are five essays that my boss, Jeffrey Tucker, went ahead and organized um, and he wrote a new forward to so that we can get the work of Mises out there so that it's new, it's pretty, it sparks an interest in people who maybe have never read him before. And I think it's crucial to mention that at the time of our founding in 1933, our founder, Edward C. Harwood, wrote a ton of papers about the Fed, about what was going on at the time of the the founding of the Institute. Um, And a lot of the things that he mentioned about history especially as it related to FDR and the way that that whole mess was going, is still really relevant today. So one other title that we were able to get out um, around January of this year is called The Counter-Revolution. So that was by him. It hadn't been in print for almost 70 years, which is crazy to me. Another one we have also by E.C. Harwood. It's called Useful Economics. Really simple, very useful, just like the title says, Economic Lessons that Folks who may have an interest or maybe they've studied economics, if they're interested, it's a good way to go. We also have a lot of other titles that are newer. For example, uh, one that Doug and I were talking about is called For a New Liberalism by Ebeling, one of our senior fellows. So we have a lot of different options out there for folks who are interested in economics, history, um, and anything as it relates to sound money. So... You mentioned Eveling. I, I really enjoy the essays he writes for you, but it's pretty dense stuff. And, you know, I'm really into all that stuff. I love it. But as a communications person, what do you do when, you know, how do you, I don't want to say popularize it, but how do you go from the deep, dense writings of someone like Eveling, or we talked about Ludwig von Mises, how do you then try to you know, evangelize the masses with that. And is, is that part of your role? And what's the secret to that? Ooh, the secret. Okay, I'd tell you, but I'd have to kill you. Um, no, just kidding. I, you know, one possibility you might consider, I've heard other people do this, is uh, use uh, SpongeBob gifts. Uh, there, there are a lot of those on my Twitter. Absolutely. 
So the big thing that comes with my role in getting the research, getting the book into a Google Doc, editing it, making sure it's pretty, having it as clean as possible, getting it typeset, and then designing a cover is pulling a tiny nugget. That's maybe two or three sentences that really summarize the book and what readers can expect out of it. So I spend a lot of my time figuring out, okay, how can I best get this message across in the cover, in the back cover copy, and then in the Amazon description? It's pretty difficult. But as you said, I am a communications marketing person. So one way that I found, at least in my everyday life, in order to try to evangelize people is to talk about how government just gets in the way and gets in their lives. Um, and I think that Ebeline Mises, Jeffrey Tucker, of course, do a much better job at getting really dense with those topics. But the way that I try to do it as much as possible is to assume that my audience knows absolutely nothing. It's one of the first things you'll ever be taught in any good journalism or communications program. Pretend that your audience is dumb. They know nothing. They're ignorant. Okay, now try to craft your message for a five or a six-year-old so that they get it. Um, so it's constantly breaking tough subjects down as much as possible. And one of the best ways that I'm able to do it, for example, in my real life with occupational licensing is talking to my esthetician, hairstylist, microblader, whomever. And I, I always like to ask, so how many hours of training did it take before you could get your license to cut my hair? Like literally all they're doing on a random Tuesday afternoon is cutting my hair, right? And it's usually anywhere from 200 to 500 hours. It's insane. And I always mention to the fantastic women who, you know, keep me looking like I'm 15, that um, I don't go to them because they have a license. I go to them because they do a good job at whatever it is they're doing, nails, hair, skin. Um, and I think a lot of people realize that the reason why you go to someone is because you like what they do. The reason why you continue to vote every day with your money is because you like what this company is doing, you like the service that this company or this business provides. And that kind of goes back into the business roundtable thing, Doug, that you and I were talking a little bit about. I choose to spend my money with companies that give a little bit of a percentage back to their community. For example, I really like CBD chocolate and there's a company called Not Pot that pays for someone's bail each month for any type of marijuana related incident, but you don't necessarily see them lobbying others to do the same. They do good works because they ultimately want to do good works in the community. Whereas these large companies like Apple and Amazon have come out recently and are trying to say, oh, well, now a corporation, uh, we're not so much about capitalism. We're, we're going to try to be a little bit more more socialistic. So we're going to change the language of what it means to be a corporation and pressure all of our friends to give all of this money back into the community, which in theory is fine, but you don't necessarily see a lot of these organizations walking the walk when they talk the talk so much. So that's, it's kind of a convoluted answer, but I think having really basic conversations with people who may not necessarily want to read really dense material and trying to write articles that break down some of these tough topics and these subjects is one of the best ways that I've been able to kind of convert people over to liberty. I want to circle back to the business roundtable topic in a minute that you brought up. But, you know, something else I've noticed is I follow a lot of your... I guess you could say you might have a different word for it, but almost self-help writing, sort of personal development. 
And one of the things that I find intriguing about that is it, it actually in some ways, you know, similar to some of the things I've been writing. Um, and I think we both find ourselves being published over at a Foundation for Economic Education because we kind of have similar concepts. And, and, I'll, and I'll take a step back and, and tell a story that um, I met Matt Welch, the editor of Reason Magazine, a libertarian publication, maybe a couple of years ago. And I told him what I told him about Lone Star Policy Institute, told him what we were going to be about. And I told him that one of the things that we really wanted to do was evangelize young people, young professionals about the free market. And he kind of nodded. And then he said, how are you going to do that? And I thought, well, you jerk. You can't ask such a cutting question as that because it just felt like I'm completely exposed. I didn't have an answer for that. But the great thing about it was the question stuck with me and uh, it kind of really helped form my own thinking. And in my writing, a lot of the a lot of the writing that I try to do is really advocate for something very, very simple, which is personal agency. The idea that what you do matters more than, you know, looking to some politician for what they're going to do for you. And so even when, you know, it's something as simple as personal development, writing something about networking or uh, continual learning, to me... There's a policy angle there because it's fundamental to the idea of if we're you're talking about free markets, you know, entrepreneurship, that there's that first step of actually believing that the, your own agency, your own actions actually matter. Is that kind of similar in your own thoughts or what's the tie to your, if I, you know, if you will, self-help writing? Absolutely. And I think one thing that kind of sticks out to me is that when I first started my career, I had some mentors in some of the different agencies and companies that I worked for, but no one was really interested in developing me or teaching me new skills. So I, I didn't want to be stuck in a boring nine to five. So I did literally everything that I could in my off hours to try to figure out, okay, how do I get a new job? How do I find a bigger and better position where I can really grow? For about two years, I felt really stuck. And as much as I tried to search the internet for the answers, I was really that I was realizing that not many people write about professional development. Um, and a lot of people, if they do write about professional development, they don't do it very well. So I think you're right in that I believe that the individual is the smallest minority. There is a policy component to it in that you have to make things happen for yourself. But as a as an older millennial, I realized that a lot of the folks who I graduated with were stuck in dead end jobs or went and got a master's and took out a ton of loans because they could because they had no idea what they wanted to do with their life. And I wanted better. So that's where a lot of my writing stems from, because ultimately the only person who's going to advocate for you is you, not a politician. Like I said, you'll get burned every time, not your mommy and daddy, because you're college graduate and you need to figure out life for yourself and not even your own coworkers sometimes. I mean, it's great if you have a work mentor or someone who's interested in trying to develop you, but ultimately, at least in my experience, that's not going to be the case. So I found in writing, at least just for my own personal website, um, that I've gotten clients that way, like people who need career coaches. And I, I do think that even college courses nowadays don't necessarily prepare students for the real world. I felt pretty prepared when I graduated from college, but 
I had no idea how to start my own business, my own LLC. I had no idea how to do taxes. I didn't really have a college mentor, like a like an older alum or anyone who was interested in helping me really grow and develop. So that's where a lot of my writing has come from for the last, uh, you know, good six, six to eight months. And I would hope that as I keep writing about professional development and even hearing stories from my sister who just graduated from university in May, it's insane how ill-prepared some college graduates are for the real world and the job market once they're through with that four-year degree. Right, right. Uh, and I've sort of uh, glibly said to some people that if I can convince you to be a capitalist and, and teach you how to be effective as a capitalist, eventually I'll probably affect your vote as well. So, uh, you know, I think it's 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 really starting at the most basic level. I was just going to say, if you want to affect someone's vote, uh, you probably, you need to vote, right? <laughs> but, um, sh- sh- true. <laughs> true. I know. I'm a horrible person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I, I make no, I make no judgments. Uh, I know, you know, some people don't feel comfortable voting for, you know, various reasons and and that's fine. And, and that could be an entire book or other podcast. It's, it's just been very interesting to me in, in my kind of career in the political consulting that I used to do. And it's sad in a way just to see how insignificant one vote really is. Um, but that's a whole other conversation for another time. Maybe you guys can have me on next week. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, you know, that's interesting because think about, uh, and again, I don't want to dwell too much on Justin Amash, but, uh, you look back at 2016 and the number of votes that flipped Michigan potentially, uh, you know, was, uh, as I understand it, Jill Stein, uh, captured more votes than the differential between Trump and Clinton. And I think it was a pretty small number. So if you're in the right place, your vote very well may matter. But anyway, what a turn now. We talked a little bit about um, the business roundtable. Josiah is really big about actually stopping and defining things. And so uh, we probably ought to take a minute to talk about what was in the business roundtable statement. First off, the business roundtable is, uh, I think they, they tout themselves as a, an association of the, the nation's leading CEOs. Um, I think the most famous of them is Jamie Dimon, who's the president or CEO of uh, J.P. Morgan Chase. And the gist of this statement, which is, is turning a lot of heads, is essentially that in the past few decades, executives have followed the idea of shareholder primacy, which is sort of in the Milton Friedman school of thought of that ultimately the purpose of a corporation is to drive profits for the shareholders, which makes perfect sense to me. I'm a, I'm a corporate attorney. That's consistent with what, uh, what we learned in law school about what the purpose of a corporation is. But this new statement goes beyond that, and it says that there's different stakeholders this should be considered by an executive. And it goes on to list some of those stakeholders as customers, uh, suppliers, employees, and even the local community. What's wrong with the new statement, if anything? I think it's give and take, right? Like ultimately, if you have a business, you are responsible to the shareholders who invest money in your business and to yourself if you know, you're know you the only shareholder. So for example, my business, my LLC, it's just me. I don't have any outside anyone unless you know someone wants to invest $10 million, call me and we'll talk. But it's just myself. It's myself. It's my two part-time employees. 
for Amazon, it's their hundreds, if not thousands of employees. And ultimately, it is your community, your customers, and the environment, right? Like, if you were an organization or some type of business that was polluting rivers and people knew about it, you'd be held responsible and you'd be held accountable to that. So I, I understand what this new definition is trying to get at, but ultimately, like, I, I, I guess I just think that in the first definition, all of these entities are accountable by proxy. I mean, does that not make sense to, to you guys? I, I don't know. I just think it's kind of goofy that they want to try to change what's already implied. Yeah, Josiah, did, I don't know if you have any comments on that or if there's someone at R Street who has uh, publicly taken a position on the, the business roundtable statement. I, I, I don't know, Doug. Is there someone at R Street who's publicly taken That's like a leading question from an attorney. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I, right. I, I actually know. I don't know. So uh, I, haven't, I haven't followed that closely to see if anybody has commented. Uh, I'm not, I'm not, a, I'm not, a, I'm not advised. So from, from my perspective, what I've seen is I've seen from both the left and the right uh, a reaction that this is, you know, really groundbreaking and that this is going to be a real sea change to mix my metaphors. But reading the statement, I don't think that it is nearly as um, big of a change as people are letting on. And part of that is because these are very bright guys, women and men who wrote this. And of course, they they don't want to say anything that's entirely radical. So, you know, granted that this is sort of a publicity ploy and they probably carefully worded this. But if you look at what they're saying, that there are other stakeholders that should be considered customers, well, you, you can't, you can't, right. It's like you can't actually return any profits to your investors, your shareholders, unless you actually service your customers. And employees are, are human capital. I, you know, if you are a labor intensive company, of course, you need to take care of your, your employees if you want to have any employees who are going to make your widgets or, or perform your services. So some of this is, to me, it's, it's not that earth shattering. I don't read it and say, oh my gosh, the, you know, the corporate law is, has been turned on its head and corporate philosophy has been turned on its head. And it's interesting, uh, we mentioned um, FEE before, Foundation for Economic Education. In the past week, I think that they've had four or five different pieces written about this from different perspectives. So even with sort of the center-right, conservative, libertarian viewpoint, there's been sort of a, on one hand, some declaring Milton Friedman is rolling over in his grave. And this is, you know, this is sort of the end of uh, corporate law as we know it. And others who have kind of shrugged their shoulder and say, uh, this is what companies do. And in fact, there was a um, Wall Street Journal piece today about David Koch's life and saying that was always kind of the Koch Industries approach was, of course, there's other there's other factors. You know, you should take care of your employees. You should be a good steward. I mean, it's just good business. I mean, I'm a corporate lawyer and I can tell you that companies are always looking to create goodwill with their customers, with their communities they serve. So I think that the implications have been overblown by uh, by the media and people that are trying to write essays about this. But that's just my perspective. Oh, I, I completely agree. And I think it all just goes without saying, if you want to be a good business, you want to invest in your employees to make them stay and in your product and in your community. So I think a lot of it is just really for good PR. And I have a feeling it'll just kind of go away. I mean, as you, as you do 
is, I don't know, I feel like as you kind of go about and restructure your company so that profits aren't what you have in mind, you're probably going to go bankrupt, or you're probably not going to serve yourself and your shareholders very well. So I don't know, we'll see what happens. Right. And, and currently, as a matter of corporate law, nothing has actually changed. So if you're the shareholders and you see that your your executives out there mouthing off about how the shareholders are no longer his uh, primary concern, well, there's a remedy for that. Um, you know, they, uh, they, they may be cashiered sooner rather than later if, if they actually start pursuing a different goal than the shareholders have in mind. I, I suppose the the big concern, though, is when you have people like Senator Warren, who's obviously running for president and does want to fundamentally change the way corporate law works. I suppose that there's a concern that um, all this opens the door to say, all right, corporate America is already changing their perspective. And and now, you know, look at my proposed legislation. This just adds teeth to what corporate America already says um, is is their responsibility as as a corporation. I just think she's a nutcase, but (laughs) anytime you have these big businesses who come out and say that everything's going to be sunshine and rainbows and they're going to care more about the environment and the consumer and redistribute and blah, 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 blah. It, it turns into big government trying to get in to make more regulations instead of just staying out, which is what I see Elizabeth Warren trying to do if God forbid she became president. Right. And so, you know, you, you earlier in the program, you'd made the comment that that you actually like some companies that put something aside, that they have a social enterprise aspect. So I guess that's the difference is on one hand, it's voluntary um, and companies are choosing to do it versus the government saying they have to do certain things. Right. That would be the difference. Uh, exactly. It's all about voluntary actions. You live in Indianapolis, as I understand it. Correct. Okay. Yeah. I, so I, uh, I actually used to live in Terre Haute, Indiana, for about five years, and I also lived in South Bend. But Terre Haute, oh, okay. I would escape to Indianapolis quite often. So, uh, have you ever owned an Andrew Luck jersey, and if so, have you burned it yet? Dude, I have a really nice Andrew Luck sweater. A sweater. <laughs> like it's a Christmas sweater. Yeah, it's an official NFL Andrew Luck sweater, and it is really, really nice. And I'm so pissed off for a couple reasons. Okay, one, I'm not, and I'm not going to get rid of the sweater. It's a nice sweater. It was kind of expensive. When Peyton Manning, you know, left, it's not like we burned our 18 jerseys. That's just in poor taste. But what's frustrating and what has a lot of Indianapolis fans really upset is that the franchise came out and was like, oh, yeah, he's going to play, he's going to play, he's going to play, and they were pushing all these ticket sales. And then all of a sudden, a bunch of people who bought season tickets, you know, they buy their tickets, they get their tickets, everyone's happy, fantasy leagues have been set. All of a sudden, he comes out and says that he's retiring? Come on. I mean, I understand, like, the dude's tired. He's had a lot of injuries. I get it. I wouldn't want to do that if I was in that position anyway. I wouldn't want to play. And I understand that the franchise just needs to make money. But come on, I just don't think it's fair to the fans. So, no, I will not burn my Andrew Luck sweater. It's still nice. I'll still wear it. But I don't know who Indianapolis has anymore, guys. We lost Luck. He's done. Uh, Paul George from Indianapolis Pacers is no longer... Uh, Victor Odalipo from the Pacers is injured. He's apparently still going to play, but 
we don't have anybody. So you struck a nerve there. Do, do we need to perhaps have some uh, the government to step in to get people some refunds on those season tickets uh, since they were misled into thinking that they would be seeing a better performance than they actually will be? No, it's their own damn fault. If anyone, <laughs> no, seriously though. And Matt Overton, uh, former Indianapolis Colt player, he's actually engaged to one of my sorority sisters, which is kind of cool. But he came out and made a statement and said that, hey, if there are any season ticket fan holders who are upset about the whole Andrew Luck thing, he will buy their season tickets back from them and donate them to Riley Children's Hospital families so that these families can go and enjoy the games themselves. I mean, that's the risk you run, right? Anytime you have a really high pressure sport or any type of team in either the NFL or the NBA. So. I don't buy season tickets anymore. Ever since Peyton Manning left, my family, we used to have season tickets, and we just don't buy them anymore. It's sad. Well, Chloe, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, it's been a pleasure. 